Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Adam from Newcastle, and I'm listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what is the smallest thing that pisses you off the most? Okay, here comes the show, and remember to question everything. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer, Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Adam from Newcastle's question. What are the smallest things that piss you off? Adam, how long you got, mate? This is, I mean, honestly, Dave, this is... Listeners, actually, do you know what? Listeners, what are the smallest things that piss you off? Because, blimey, there's a lot to choose from. Absolutely. The one thing that isn't small would be the list of things. But I guess, for me... <laughs> It would be uh, instances of human selfishness, because I think there can be small things that eventually uh, they can germinate and they become very big things. I think most of human civilization's problems stem from our short-sighted uh, apathy to each other, whether it's down to the condition you leave a toilet in in a public place or the condition you leave the seats in on a train, right down to littering. I think these are the small things that uh, snowball into an avalanche and are uh, the uh, the root causes of a lot of our problems today. I hear so. you, man. I hear you. I just would add to that and say food packaging that says peel here and it's just been badly made so it doesn't actually peel. <laughs> it really fucks me right off. But anyway, suffice to say on this show, we ask and answer all the questions. Listeners, tell us what are the smallest things that piss you off. Absolutely. No question is too big, too small, and no grievance is too small for us not to consider, listeners. And if you do like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you'll never miss an episode of our very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, oh, I should also add as well, before I forget, guys, please check us out and on the Patreon to support the podcast where you can hear uh, even more in-depth questions being asked and answered by a very special guest with special content specifically for our Patreon subscribers. With that being said, today's guest is an award-winning scientist and writer. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Irrational Ape, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theories and Propaganda, and is described as an unstoppable page-turner by Richard Dawkins. He also writes on science and society for outlets including The Guardian, Irish Times, Scientific American, The Atlantic, BBC, Financial Times and the New York Times to name a few. He was also the joint winner of the 2014 Sense About Science Maddox Prize for Standing Up for Science and as an elected fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He is very much welcome on this podcast, not so much by anti-vaxxers, but we <laughs> are very, very humbled and flattered to have uh, Dr. David Robert Grimes on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Welcome. You are so question everything. Yeah. I think it's kind of my brand, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're sure about that as yeah. a brand? When we do the stadium tour, you're like the, the, the act that goes on first, right? That does like, that gets the crowd going, you know what I mean? Like, we'll give it, you know, be, that'll be the plan anyway. Don't you put the weakest people on first just to make the other ones look better? Okay, yeah, I'm fine with that. No, no, not, not true, Doctor. Basically, we work it like a relay. So you've got to have your first person that sets pace first of all. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I feel like as well, 
essentially in terms of like existential questions you're right up there because for reasons we might not go into right now the Dalai Lama has gone basically he's relegated of quite a few leagues so I, I might have been following some of that yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's not really one of our Champions League uh points of inquiry anymore how are you Dr David Robert Grimes how's things going how are you I, I, I am in very good form and it's it's very good to see you both today and, and talk to you both so what are the things that uh really get your goat the little things in life do you know i have a really weird one and there's few hills i'll die on and they're they're often <laughs> grammatical or lexiconical one of them is people saying factoid when they mean factlet anything ending in oid means has the appearance of but not being an asteroid is not an astral body a hemorrhoid is not a hemorrhage a factoid is not a fact but it might look like one and it's a very i, I don't know why but for some reason there's also people saying begging the question, and I know I can't change. <laughs> begging the question is a rhetorical technique, it, it, but raising a question, these are the two small hills I'll die on. Uh, they're not worth dying on, but I will die on them. And that is Listen, a total a lot, pointless a thing to be annoyed there. about. I think I, I think it's fair. I think it's a lot of hills. I think particularly the factlet and the factoid are important because uh, the misuse of such a term in a post-truth era only serves to worsen the uh, narrative state of human discourse at the moment. Yeah. So you're being yeah. very generous to my absolutely kind of anal retentive. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, well, you know what, Dane? It is probably time for a question as the format of this show dictates. Absolutely, Dr. Grimes. As our very esteemed guest, we'd like to invite you to ask the first question, which can be any question uh, which we'd like to normally discuss for 15 minutes or so, although uh, we have a feeling that we'll be able to expand considerably on your question. Uh, due to your uh, vast uh, and diverse uh, range of knowledge regarding several different topics. Um, and yeah, should we uh, continue? My producer friend Howard would like to pose a question to you as well. And keeping with tradition, if we still have more inquiries, I'd like to pose a question to you too. Uh, and after which, we'd love for you to tell our listeners and viewers where they can find out about your good works, past, present and future. How does that sound? Sounds good to me. Cool. Well, the floor is yours to ask the first question. So the big question that comes up an awful lot is we live in an era where conspiracy theories and disinformation are more and more common. And I'm often asked, does the rise in conspiracy theories mean that there aren't any actual real conspiracies? <laughs> it's such a good question. I mean, the, the scope of your work, it, I think we've got to give listeners a bit more than what we gave in the, in the bio, if that's cool with everyone. Because you writing the book that you wrote, I assume was quite labor intensive. It took a while, all right. Yeah, I mean, physically it was just tapping keys, but yeah, I suppose there was a good bit of research that had to go into it. So I've just described writing as just tapping keys. I feel like every <laughs> writer who's ever heard that will just go mad. But hey, so yeah, there was, there was a lot of work in it. The yeah. physical, the physical act of writing, which you know takes some effort as well. I think the bit that stands out for me is you said that, you know, doing research, which I, I find is a very common rebuttal in discussions about conspiracy theory, that uh, people will purport a theory and people will then begin to interrogate that theory, I guess, for what would be a, a maybe a null hypothesis. And the response from people normally is the, like, do your own research, which I think is a very uh, good, it's a, I suppose it's a, it's a defensive tactic by um, most people think most people aren't going to do this research. <laughs> and it, but it's also, in some ways, as a scientist, it, it, it's it's a thing that I both love and hate. And I'll, I'll break that down if I may, mm -hmm. right? 
firstly, I am I've, for I have a long track record in public engagement in science. I'm always trying to get the public involved. But people seem to forget that research is a skill. You have to be trained in it. It's really hard. You can't just suddenly go on to PubMed or something and decide you're an expert in vaccination. It takes years and years of training. So oftentimes I'll have people write me emails and they'll say, blah, blah, blah. And I will say, well, actually, the mistake is here because you've misinterpreted this bit of, of this publication or what this means. And they will respond by their research, which is about 74 YouTube videos. Blogs, <laughs> and I'll go, you know, dude, it took me like years to get a PhD in this and, and, and learn this stuff. This is hard. So I think the problem with a lot of terminology is research means different things. If I'm looking up to buy a car, I'm doing a much lower level of research than say, if I'm trying to work out how an mRNA vaccine works, they're, they're entirely different levels that, you know, and, and we use them interchangeably. So one of them, maybe scientists have been bad at explaining that research requires training. Scientists just don't wake up one day and decide I'm going to do some science. Like that's why they do degrees and doctorates and have committees telling them how to do things. So the internet has given us this beautiful access to information, but it doesn't train us how to interpret that information and how to interrogate that information. Mm -hmm. So doing your own research is often a big red flag, especially if you're coming to the opposite conclusion of what expert consensus is. That should be the warning that you've probably gone wrong somewhere. I really need to feel like I really want to stop laughing at this scenario because it's not funny. It is, it is a little bit funny. I it mean, is a little bit funny, but at the same time, it's, it's getting to the point where it's not. And, you know, there was a time, uh, apologies for my language, where a bunch of cunts told us to leave the European <laughs> Union, right? <laughs> they told us to leave. The... I didn't see that coming, Howard. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they, they said leave the European Union, and they used one thing, which is people are tired of uh, experts. Uh, Michael Gove. People yeah. have had enough of experts. People, yep. don't, people yeah. don't want experts. So that's why when they break their leg or they've got syphilis or any number of the, all they do is they just pop down the Tesco and they just pick out, they just ask the person behind the counter, what do you think I should put on my leg? You know, obviously people don't do that. They go to doctors because they're experts. Well, uh, yeah, and expertise isn't interchangeable. If I had a problem with my heart, I wouldn't go to my mechanic. But if I had a problem with my car, I go to my mechanic. Like expertise is so domain specific and everything else. Yeah, the, the, the Brexit one is still a sore point. I was living in the UK when that happened. I was able to vote in that because Irish people can vote in the UK. And uh, it still went the wrong way for us. So we're still a bit sore on that one. Your fault. I can tell you that that is largely due to the hubris of uh, Londoners that that vote went the way it did. I think a lot of Londoners took for granted the uh, environment of multiculturalism and interdependent relationships of the uh, working immigrant proletariat and the uh, national bourgeoisie that enjoy the fruits of said labor. And so a lot of Londoners were like, no one would be that stupid. No one, nobody would vote that badly against their own interests because a lot of Londoners, I think, were very uh, ignorant of the uh, plight of the uh, British uh, working class outside of you know, the M25 and the home counties. And these people had been relatively neglected and left open for um, absorbing populist rhetoric. And um, But that's a very interesting point as well. You're absolutely correct. But we go the susceptibility to, to conspiracy theory and populist rhetoric. Everyone remembers Nigel Farage's poster of a bunch of conspicuously darker skinned people queuing like they're coming for your borders. How that 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 and, yeah, break, it's breaking point and and terms yes, a, lot, a lot of nomenclature that would elicit fear from people who already have 
historically been polarized along industrial lines using uh racism as a as the uh I suppose, yeah, as, as a, a stick to wedge things in. Yeah, I know yeah. it was it's 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 a horrific case study in that. I mean, the same year, you could argue Trump's election might have taken a few of a similar beats as well. Definitely um, helped the, I, definitely helped for the normalization of uh, populism and also basically allowed us to uh, return to, I guess, an imperialistic or jingoistic state with uh, no challenge. Yeah, because um, under under the guise of patriotism, I I basically noticed things were a bit weird when the war slogan, wartime slogan, "Keep calm and carry on," began to have a resurgence in popularity and appear on a lot of uh, apparel and uh, cushions. Because I was like, we just had the biggest economic crash in recorded history, and probably not something to remain calm about. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it it is, but luckily. You folks have fantastic Tory leadership over there right now. I mean, you've had a <laughs> string of them, right? No. So I can't even keep a straight face saying that. Just for anyone listening, <laughs> my face was not at all straight saying. But it is amazing to see the political turmoil um, that has resulted. And it is seem like free fall chaos is a good description of. And, and I, I, I mean, but again, are people annoyed as, the, uh, as annoyed as they should be about that? Well, I guess we'll see in the next election, but. Yeah. I hopefully, right? Well, I think yeah. going back to your question about kind of, you know, that obviously there's been this huge rise in conspiracy theories. Mm. Is, is for you, do you cite the inadequacies of the powers like government in our country and not just in our country, in the world, as to why people are reaching for those conspiracies? So to answer that question, we got to break things down just a little bit more. And one of the criticisms I often get when I do public talks and conspiracy theories is, oh, you can just call anything a conspiracy theory. And here's the truth. There's a load of conspiracies. If the three of us decide we're going to break into a house and steal some stuff, I'm, I'm free on Friday. How are you guys doing? But if we decide we're going to do that, that's a conspiracy. We've yeah. just engaged in one, right? Yeah. But I think the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory involves a concept psychologists called conspiratorial ideation. Conspiratorial ideation is when you always or almost always attribute things that you observe to the hidden machinations of some cabal, even when there's a far more prosaic, easier answer that explains things better. Usually so, money. Usually, yeah. Conspiracy <laughs> theories, for example... Um, they have a false explanatory power. Usually they, they actually don't explain as much. They require a lot of just so or multiple coincidences. And there's a tendency in human society to go towards conspiratorial ideation. So you see an event that happens and there must be a sinister deep meaning for it. You saw that. And a great example it was during the beginning of the pandemic where you had people who were saying George Soros or Bill Gates had manufactured this giant pandemic we were all affected by now why did they do that i mean instead of a natural series of random events which is a virus evolves ricochets around a bit and gets a particular set of mutations that makes it nasty that's a lot of random you know chaotic stochastic events happening for a lot of people it is easier to throw all that randomness to one side and they know someone had a plan someone was behind that and there is an tendency in people to sometimes attribute random events to machinations of people that actually aren't that organized. And I sometimes point out with conspiracy theories, even when you try 
to do a conspiracy theory. They don't always work that well. Um, it was Robbie Burns said the the best laid plans of mice and men oft gan aglay, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of right. When the guys went and killed Julius Caesar in 44 BC, they were trying to stop him becoming um, an, an emperor. And yet the word Kaiser or Caesar or chief was like the word for king for hundreds of years after. That is an unintended consequence that just happens. Mm-hmm. So the idea, but the problem with conspiratorial ideation is that people both believe there's always a secret cabal controlling things and they believe that cabal are all powerful when in reality all the, you know, it, that's not how it works. So well, it's actually a simple, it's a simplification of the real world, but it yeah. can be a very dangerous simplification. And as the only member of this podcast right now, that's Jewish, I want to say it's completely true that we do control the world. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> it's important to flag that up because the amount of history that's been based 100%. on the idea yeah. that the Jews have been somehow, yeah, no, we've been controlling this guys. And you know what our big plan was? Persecution. You're never going to spot us. If that was our, that was your master stroke. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. It, it's weird. I'm right. I, I've written before and I have another, um, I'm, I'm working on a big piece now and there's an entire chapter on, on the history of anti-Jewish conspiracy theory because you got to look at anti-Semitic stuff as the canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. for everything. Right. If you go back, say QAnon, something we consider quite modern, the tropes that QAnon use, the adreno, ad- adenochrome and harvesting children for organs and s- a cabal of satanic pedophiles, those exact same slurs were thrown at Jewish people in the 13th, 12th century, right? It was the blood libel trope. Yeah, I, w- I watched so- the film Amsterdam because uh, I think it was very important because I don't think a lot of people are aware of the uh, scale of anti-Jewish sentiment that existed in America prior to the uh, proliferation of the Nazi party in World mm. War II. But after the first Great War, uh, it was very healthy. I mean, and also prior to that as well. Obviously, you had thousands of years prior to that. Um, so, because I wanted to add something, you said something that uh, made me think as well, is that um, I think one of the uh, reasons people gravitate towards conspiracy as well is um, I think it's a great way of um, uh, absolving yourself of accountability socially. Yes, yes. Uh, because if you can uh, create, I guess what today is referred to as a straw man, or if you can create a uh, institutional fiction of omniscience, then it's like saying, well, I can't do anything about it because they're behind the scenes and they're all powerful. And it's a great, and I think, I guess, in by that token, uh, conspiracy theory has supplemented what... Um, more archaic or medieval theological belief was it's because if something was inexplicable you could be like well this is the will of god and then you had you could argue that you had a conspiracy in the form of uh the clergy and you know had the other cabals like the clergy who were able to you know had and basically had an educational uh advantage over the rest of the populace where it was like just being able to speak latin put you in a elite uh um echelon of social hierarchy at the time Obviously, through the democratization of knowledge, not everyone's been able to uh, process that knowledge because not everyone's had access to information for that long. Absolutely. And you hit on a really important point. And I think we, I, I always separate conspiracy theorists, and it's a spectrum. I always put this into into the hardcore ones that propagate it and the victims of it. And I'm going to break that down because I think it actually hits on the two points you made there. Firstly, Conspiracy theories are popular because they are simplifying narratives. It's no matter how complicated they seem, it is always an us versus them. 
It is always there as an evil external us and a noble few. Sorry, an evil external them and a noble few us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it, it 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 provides an illusion. It's called epistemic certainty, an illusion that you understand what's going on, and it's really reassuring, right? So you can see why people are drawn to them because they give them um, an illusion of an explanation. And there's an us versus them. And that's a social thing that humans crave. Yeah. Like I'm on the side of truth and they are. And, and like the church, you mentioned, they're a side of truth, side of villainy. But if you uh, look. Mor- 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 moralism is just a part of the human complex that people need is, to function yeah. where, uh, where morality is come, I guess, conflated with politics and political spectrums. People want to right side of history is now a term yeah. which allows people to be manipulated in the way you're describing. So yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But the other thing you'll realize about it is if you look at the loudest mouths who spread conspiracy theories, they're not usually the ones that suffer for them. They make other people suffer for them. Mm -hmm. If you are spreading anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, you're making a parent hesitant whose child might die because they don't get a vaccination. This has happened with the MMR, the Mises Most Rebella one is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. The people not vaccinating their children were affected by the conspiracy theory, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't be the people I would hold. I, I would have, Every only sympathy for those people because that's what how humans process information. But if you look at the people that spread conspiracy theories and make their name spreading them, and during the pandemic, I'm sure we could sit here and just spend the rest of his podcast naming names, right? Yeah. But if you look at them, one of the biggest psychological motivators of people that spread them is narcissism. Mm-hmm. And if you there's a very straightforward reason for that if you know nothing about anything and you suddenly realize you can get a platform and you can get attention and you can get even money because it is profitable to do this and by masquerading as an expert and people will basically worship you as a speaker of truth. That is very seductive for people that are more egotistical, narcissistic and people who couldn't give less of a damn by whom they affect. So when you look at a lot of conspiracy theorists who spread stuff out your David Icke's of this world to use an old fashioned safe example, if you look at what they do or Alex Jones, probably can't sue us he's in too much trouble as it is yeah you'll notice they're not even consistent in their conspiracy theory all they're consistent is is claiming they know something so people will listen to them and a friend of mine a professor in kent karen douglas did a great experiment years ago which i think you'll love she looked at american people and she looked at english people and in america there's a lot of conspiracy theories about osama bin laden and mm-hmm. his death in 9 11 and in the uk princess diana conspiracy theories are a very very big thing and they found the most conspiratorial people. They would give them a narrative about Diana. And they'd say, she faked her own death to get out of the limelight, or the queen and the royal family had her killed. People that really believed conspiracy theories would believe the two of those narratives at the same time. Like you had some Schrodinger's princess that was both simultaneously alive and dead. It was the same with Bin Laden. That's why I called the chapter in the book, you know, Schrodinger's Bin Laden. They believed that he was both alive and dead. What actually really mattered to these people, these hardcore, very extreme on the fringe, is that they knew something you didn't. They felt yes. better than you. And that's worrying because it's not about knowledge. These things don't really explain anything. It's for some people, it's about feeling a feeling they know more. It's not knowledge is power. And so it's mm. it's the it's the idea, like you said, it's the ideation that you have leverage over another human being and where you may fall short in other aspects of uh social i guess in human socialization or human interaction you're like well it's because i know the truth and for a lot of people that's very comforting especially if the in other aspects of your life you find yourself quite isolated 
that if yes. you're able to rationalize that isolation um social marginalization by being like well it's because i'm a truth seeker it's a, it's, it's a it can be a very uh, truth seeker on twitter is one of my red flag words if i see <laughs> saying they're a truth seeker i know they're a gobshite i'll just look through their <laughs> their mention like just what i what i do these days i, I twitter is a horrible platform much for instagram these days it's a bit friendlier you have better conversations mm. but when i if someone messages me anything and it's a loaded question we have a thing in science communication we call um just asking questions when people aren't really asking a question and making a statement and actually, it's a lovely acronym. We call it jacking off, J-A-Qing off, mm. uh, when people do it. So whenever I get a question I feel is loaded, and I've been doing this for years, so I've got a fairly good radar, I click on the person's profile first. And if they have a stream of horrific, you know, or conspiracy theories or anti-Semitic stuff, I'm like, there is no point in me engaging with this person. This is not a good faith engagement block. And then they often will create a second account to go, why did you block me? I'm like, block again. Uh, there, you know, you have to pick your battles with this stuff. Of course, it? and I think that the the battles that are out there, I mean, there's so many to talk about. But but is it worth just saying? And I, I, <laughs> let's let's you know, come on, we're all adults. Uh, you know that that it is probable in the history of humanity that some people have conspired in things right absolutely they have i think i think it's weird in life that you you often end up in a scenario where we're obviously not going to believe some of this crazy stuff that we might still talk about a bit but but it doesn't mean that there hasn't been the crazy stuff that people are talking about i actually heard a story recently about the end of the second world war where they were i don't know if you ever heard this about the fact that they were really worried that the um the russians were going to invade europe that they left a, a a bit of Germany under Nazi occupation to tease the, the British left this bit of Nazi Germany with this one German general and said, like, let's leave them there for a couple of weeks and see if the Russians come and try and take it over. And it was like, you know, they didn't. And then they shut it down. But it was a real conspiracy um, that there's lots of documentation to prove it. So these things sure. do, can happen. Right? In fact, the Second World War arguably started with a conspiracy. Um a pretext to try and end now, and actually we've seen a, a modern parallel. Uh, and so, for example, the, the beginning 31st of August in uh, 1939, the Germans staged an attack on themselves and on a border city in Poland. To the, try Lus and get a... the Lusitania? No, the, it wasn't Lusitania. It was, um, the name will come back, it was a radio station on, on, on oh. a city. And they left, you know, uniformed soldiers, which they called canned meat, which is horrible. They'd already killed them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And they stage an attack and they broadcast something. 
The rest of the world didn't believe it. Um, but that was a pretext for war, which is an interesting thing. We saw it again in February to the, uh, last year. The U.S. intelligence community did something very interesting they've never done before. They released documents before Putin invaded Ukraine saying, hey, Putin's going to stage an attack, so he has a pretext to invade Ukraine. Now, the reason that was interesting is that the NSA and the CIA don't generally release their intel before things happen. But it actually was a very good policy, I feel. Yeah, it 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 made it made the it didn't stop the invasion, but it made the rest of the world go. Oh, for God's sakes! Okay, we know what he's going to do. His hand is exposed here. So when we get into conspiracy theory, and this is the interesting thing, during war and subterfuge and criminal conspiracies happen, wartime conspiracies happen, right? But they sustain for a short period of time. Generally, they're only supposed to sustain for a little while. So I did a paper on this a good few years ago. It turns out if you want to keep something secret. You need to keep it to a very small group, and ideally, it needs to be a one-off event, or as one-off as you can do. So um, I always thought that Benjamin Franklin famously said that three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And there's an element of truth to that. Um, and the paper I did years ago looked at, look, let's play devil's advocate. Let's look. Because we know Edward Snowden came out 10 years ago this year and said, hey, they're all spying on you, right? And then they he, went, and then people went, yeah, but... But I, I really like, like being Facebook. able to say what I want online, yeah. and then and then Mark Zuckerberg was having hearings about like the danger of the use of the data collections from from Meta, and nobody was like, there seems to be a conspiracy to take our data and monetize it. No one, it didn't occur to anybody once to be like, what's that about, or like, or that people were susceptible to being uh, radicalized on social media due to like cyber attacks because exactly. people think cyber attacks involves HKs from Terminator Two. And uh, you know, titanium endoskeletons firing lasers, and so no one really thought about it. But it's, no, it's uh... going to be Chat GPT, isn't it? That's going to be so <laughs> underwhelming when it actually happens. But you're right. So I always point out that conspiracies to to commit an act happen all the time. Again, robbing the bank earlier on, we talked about that. That's a conspiracy. But very big conspiracies, and this is what the paper I looked at years ago is that as you add more and more actors to a conspiracy, and you ask them to keep it secret for longer and longer. Someone lets the cat out of the bag. An email gets sent to the wrong person. Or you have an Edward Snowden. Like, Remember the entire prison project in the US. I used that in the paper as a case study. That's like 29,000 people knew about that project. And it was less than six years before one of them went, nope, not cool with this. Yeah. Now, it can be someone going, I'm not cool with it. It can be someone sending an email to the wrong person. Have you ever done that? The more people you involve. And the big, the anti-science conspiracy theories that I deal with all the time, oh, climate change is a hoax. And I'm like, you need millions of people for 50 to 60 years to keep a secret <laughs> or even the moon landings, like the NASA moon landings required a contractor staff of 411,000 people. Yeah. You know, it's the, these are a, a huge numbers. It's, it's easier to keep secret. So military secrets and things absolutely or criminal conspiracies, but that's why criminals don't recruit openly. They try to keep the people involved small military intelligence tries to keep it small too. But you're right. They, can, you know, that's the I guess the the, the arbitrary distance here. And just just because I I just thought when I was hearing you speak there, uh, the prison story may not be something that everyone who's listening to this has heard. Oh yeah, yeah. I, would, just, will I briefly just outline it? A yeah. little, just because I feel sure. like if, if you if you heard that bit, this might not make sense until you hear the story. Sure. So in in a very brief outline, and probably uh, apologies to anyone who's technical who get the details wrong. In 2013, um, an NSA, so a National Security Agency, the most secret of all the American intelligence things, 
a contractor called Edward Snowden was working on a project called Prism. And what that basically did was it rerouted about a quarter of the world's internet traffic and was able to snoop on emails, exchanges, metadata. So basically it was an organized spying ring. These people must have the world's largest collection of dick pics in the world. Like this is what the, they probably had there. They had everything. But that was illegal and unethical. And even though they could do it, that was a problem. And one of the contractors who worked for them, Edward Snowden, walked out with a data disk full of information and went to the Guardian and said, not only am I alleging that this is happening, I have proof. And what I find really interesting is when he offered that proof, no one was able to deny it. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing. When people, when a whistle, when the um, the Pentagon Papers came out, no one could deny that was the truth. Or the Panama so, paper, or the Panama Papers. Exactly. Came out. Yeah. So, like, it you can expose a conspiracy theory with one hit if you have the evidence. It's like boom. So that entire project involved about twenty nine thousand people over six years before it was exposed. Yeah. And twenty nine thousand is not a big number. Like, it, it seems like a big number, but this what this kind of indicates to you, and you can go through the maths. We'll skip that for now. I won't torture people with maths, but it's just it gets increasingly difficult to keep secrets the more people you involve and we all know that intuitively in real life like if you're if you gossip to about a friend someone that friend will gossip to another friend no matter how good you are keeping secrets and the nsa are very good at keeping secrets and have a motivation to do so human conscience human error um human subversion is always going to be a factor and human clumsiness. Let's well, face it. Yeah, and, 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 so a social species and a social species as well. We're a social species as well. So a large one of the ways we contextualize our existence is our interaction with other people. And yeah. the uh, the more the hotter the tea, the better the interaction is going to be, theoretically speaking. So everyone kind of knows what are the most effective rapport builders and icebreakers. There's normally knowing something other people don't know. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it also becomes information is it's it's as well as it's currency. It's like, absolutely. It's like if you know someone who's just broken up with someone, right, and they tell you not to tell anyone. Come on, we yeah, all know yeah. you're gonna tell someone, right? Yeah. Or someone's got in trouble for something. Me and Dane spend a lot of time in the world of comedy, and let me tell you, we know a lot of shit. Oh, you comics love gossiping. I have oh, friends, I have oh friends who are comedians, and I've never yeah, we, met yeah. a bigger oh, yeah. bunch we love of gossips. It. We love yeah. it. We love it. That's essentially that, that's our jobs. We disseminate that information to the public in terms of how we interpret it. Like as observational comedians, I think it's uh, a large part of the comedian's creative complex where we look at everyday phenomena and then try to find, to a certain extent, the conspiratorial uh, aspects of that or the subtext of what we're looking at because that makes our material more interesting because the idea is that we want to have a uh, novel take on what we see every day and what other pe- and everyone and most other who- people's experiences because we are also aware of that what's like the uh, appetite in terms of and you know that piques uh, human curiosity and in many cases there's been a lot of comics I've seen who've unfortunately gone off the edge with these conspiracies and uh, especially if they've affected their livelihood um so yeah, the pandemic was, I found it to be very divisive among comedians because some comics, particularly comics that were uh, road comics or who make the lion's share of their uh, money from performing in other countries and being able to travel and perform live were some of the most outspoken about conspiracy theories regarding uh, lockdown, maybe not so much COVID, but lockdown. Mm. 
Uh, and you can understand mm-hmm. why, because we're, oh, definitely. We're, we're, we're humans first and foremost, right? Mm-hmm. And we we seek simpler answers for complicated questions. And also, sometimes we just seek someone to be angry at. You can't be angry at a virus. You can't be angry at evolution. But yeah. you can be angry and say, someone is to blame for this. And it's very easy when you start off from a place of anger. It is very easy to find the wrong people to demonize for that anger. And if a, if a situation is complicated and messy, like lockdowns were, it's easier to suddenly condense that into, you know, the George Soros or the, the you know, someone did this. Someone, because it's easier to put your anger on a person or a people than it is to a situation which is more abstract. Well, Cause people, yeah. cause people, because people, because we, because uh, I believe that's also because human beings, I guess we use, it's a great, it's a way of soothing and we always seek closure, especially when we're dealing with things or if we're dealing with phenomena we've not experienced before, like having a singularity that we can focus our anger and frustration on makes Absolutely. it easier. And like, because I think it's, is it Nicholas to see book Black Swans? Oh where yeah. He, yeah. But he basically well, Nicholas Tassim has is big on conspiracy theories himself. He's a he's a GMO yeah. conspiracy theorist, which shows you that even a very good thinker, yeah, can suddenly go a bit funny. I think, and I think, and I and I think that's it's, you know, it's a. I guess it's is. It, I look at that in a way that you know everybody has a vice, whether yeah. it's a physical one or a psychological one. We all have you know one form or another that we kind of I suppose use it as a way of either anchoring ourselves or orienting ourselves that there is something that the unknown rather than you know i guess dealing with the daunting aspects or the inferiority complex that comes from the unknown yeah being like i don't i don't really trust that makes us feel a lot there's a weird stability in interpreting instability or interpreting conspiracy you've hit the nail on the head there in a big way so one of the major psychological motivations and again with the disclaimer i'm not a psychologist but unfortunately in the researching of this book I had to go and talk to psychologists. Adversion to randomness is a very strong thing. It, it's why, you know, when something bad happens to you and people go, things happen for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And you go, well, actually, no, sometimes shit just happens. It's I mean, very hard for is, people to accept that, that sometimes yeah, absolutely. shit fucking happens. Now, there is especially a physical in, causality it, chain. Especially but with moralism, with moralism yeah. where it's like somebody was killed. Why was that person killed? Where were they? Who's this? Like, if uh, for a species that shares uh, physical and psychological traits and, you know, arguably the entire uh, gestation period of uh, Homo sapien mimics the uh, evolutionary chain from the single-celled organism to the primate. And we understand that we may share genetic similarities from chimpanzees to bananas. Sometimes wild, crazy shit just fucking happens. Yeah. And, unfor- and then unfortunate is unfortunate. And, you know, with... 8 billion or 7 billion people or 6.5 billion people. Someone is somebody in 6.1 billion. Like you said, 29,000, when you compare it to a global population is an infinitesimal amount of people to be working on a project of uh, harvesting metadata. But there's definitely 29,500 people in this world who would kill somebody just for kicks. There might be 29,000 in the UK that might do that. I mean, I think it's, or That's because you Brits are all crazy, you know. That's, that's <laughs> but um, let me let me do one yeah. thing, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna because I think you know our listeners will have enjoyed this immensely. But I'm gonna set a timer here. Yeah, I'm, I'm off topic. Sorry, it's me. No, 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 no. I'm gonna set a timer here, and I'm gonna say to you, right? Let's see how many of these things we can debunk with. 
our special guest, Dr. David Robert Grimes, in in five minutes. All right, hit me. You up for it? You I'm can up just, for it. You can you can be blunt <laughs> and just smash the shit out of some of these. I'm, okay? I'm yeah. I mean, I won't. No frills. Let's just do it. I think because I, I think the people do want to hear your take on certain subjects that are obviously the conspiracy theories they hear about. So there's some some basis of logic to my idea, don't you think, Dane? Yeah, we'll we'll, yeah. we'll find out, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. let's, let's see how it goes. Time starts now. Vaccines. So vaccine conspiracy theories are actually ancient. The earliest one I have a record of is from 1798. Um, vaccines are the most life-saving invention we've ever done after clean water. So really, how would you get millions upon millions upon millions of scientists and doctors around the world over centuries to lie about something? I think it'd be like herding cats. So let's put that one in the bin of wrong ideas. Nine <laughs> um, Definitely happened. We all remember it. Uh, we, you know, did, did, was it conspiracy? Well, yes, it was a criminal conspiracy, but it definitely happened. But it wasn't Israel. It wasn't, you know, um, a secret hologram being flown into the building. We know that's all garbage. What Steel the beams do burn. <laughs> actually, they, they they don't they don't this is actually interesting i'm, I'm uh, wasting my five minutes here but actually, um jet so what do people fuel, want so what it people is want. correct this is a great example jet and i wrote about this in the book actually because jet fuel doesn't melt steel but it does decrease its tensile strength by about 90 percent. that's like turning hard spaghetti into loopy spaghetti and it all falls down so it's an, a little tiny modicum of something that's correct understood the wrong way so it doesn't have to melt the beams to make the building fall down it just has to turn them into spaghetti which is what it did amazing right uh the 2020 election of america oh um was it stolen by biden it was by... stolen it was stolen. He, he, he actually stole it in a very clever way he won the popular vote <laughs> and the electoral college vote so yes against an incredibly unpopular president who had already been divisive had decided to screw up things further with his COVID response. So let's put that down to wishful thinking on the behalf of Trump supporters. Yeah, it, normally if you tell people to inject bleach, it's not going to go well for you. No, but uh, weirdly enough, there are a group, uh, I, called the, I forgot the name of the church, but they sell a thing called Miracle Mineral Solution. And it's uh, it's very popular during the pandemic. We're selling it. It is mainly bleach. So if anyone ever tries to sell you Miracle Mineral Solution for what ails you, they are not only wrong, they're an idiot, and please don't inject or drink bleach. And not only that, uh, if any uh, progressive or altruistic religious institution tries to begin anything of benefit with cell, then uh, you shouldn't trust avoid. them. Avoid. Avoid. Like, yeah, I've, got, I've got a couple more to fit in. Let's see where we get. I've got, we've got two, yeah, two, two minutes. Uh, JFK assassination. Oh, we were chatting this earlier on. So the JFK assassination is a fascinating one. Um until you look into the history of Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald was a, was actually a very good marksman. It's the one thing he was good at, but he was kicked out of the army for playing with guns. He shot himself in the leg. He went to Russia, decided he was going to become a communist. The Russians thought he was nuts. He tried to kill himself in Russia. They basically kicked him out. He decided he was angry with Russia, angry with America, tried to kill a guy called John Walker, who was a right-wing demagogic guy, missed with the same rifle he eventually shot JFK with. The, well, the only reason we remember JFK is because as someone so in inconsequential and kind of politically skewy as Oswald had that mark on history. But John Hirsch, who shot at Ronald Reagan, didn't kill him, so we don't ever think about him. Mm. If John Hirsch had killed 
or I think I forget his name wrong, but if he had killed Ronald Reagan in that assassination attempt, we'd have conspiracy theories about the Reagan assassination. Just because an event, a small person can have a big impact, doesn't mean we, it's all the proximate cause effect. We expect that things that have a big a big impact must have had an equally big cause. And sometimes it's just a loser with a gun who wants to shoot someone. And, got, and you've got to remember some, that also that happened at a time where I think it was, was it 63? Six, it was. It was 63. November 63. Yeah, and yeah. then 66 was uh, Martin, uh, Malcolm X. And I think yep. Martin Luther King was 68. 64, uh, was he 68 or 64? Oh, was oh, 64, yeah, 64. Yeah, so yeah. There, it was a time of massive political uh, instability in the States. And so mm, people... Yeah. And a lot years. less bulletproof things on cars there, which they eventually yeah. learned to do later on. Yeah. Um, last one, last 45 seconds, climate change. Well, climate change has was theoretically done by physicists in, in the late 1700s. It was experimentally demonstrated by an Irishman, John Tyndall, in the early 1800s. We've known about the mechanism of it. We've measured it since 1950. We have ample data it's happening. For a conspiracy about climate change to be happening, you would need, again, hundreds of thousands or millions of scientists over decades deciding to lie to the public. And why would they do that when the reality is, here's the data you can measure yourself. We have screwed things up. Maybe we need to do that less. But I would also point out, there's a lot of oil companies who spent a lot of money trying to downplay the amount of damage they've done. That is a long and painful conversation. But some people benefit from conspiracy oh. theories. And also, time. also, sorry to interrupt. Obviously, if climate change was incorrect and we weren't having a negative effect on the environment, then both ecological scientists and uh, you know, and climate change deniers can all rejoice in the fact that things aren't bad. So hey, the world's not on fire. Wouldn't yeah, that be great? It, Unfortunately, yeah. it is. So yeah, it's very much on fire. Yeah. Well, you did it all in five minutes, David, and that was a, a list that I went to on the internet, which will now probably ruin my search engine. Uh, it's six of the top conspiracy theories in the world um i, I mean dane do you, i mean that was in, i mean he he smashed it right that's that I, I genuinely didn't believe any of them and now i have the feeling that i was right um yeah and i i think that in itself it can i think truth is a matter of perception and i think that's the problem is that the uh arguments are normally a discussion in people's truths and truths can be very much linked to people's egos and that is why we have facts. And that's yes. why the uh, field of scientific research is so important is because when people have their own personal truths, we can objectively conduct in uh, research uh, and allow us to reach a conclusion based on the uh, outcome of that research, which is why, you know, we use terms like theory uh, as opposed to certainty, because it leaves yeah. open to methodology and to study and research. When I'm, asked, if, yeah. when I'm asked about truth, I always say truth is a philosophical concept. Yes. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's very subjective. Whereabouts, we can have our own opinions, but we're entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. We all live in the same world. We share a reality. So facts do matter. But truth, well, that's far more spiritual, philosophical, way beyond my pay grade. But we can talk about shared reality and like, you know, that's important as well. So I that when I'm dealing with people who sell supplements and crap like that, they're all like, oh, but it's my truth. And I'm like, the problem with your truth is you're telling someone else that it's a fact. That is where you've crossed the line into something testable and you're wrong. So stop. Yeah. Which is why a lot of Freudian, even Freudian theory is uh, is up for debate as well, because 
I believe that he didn't provide a lot of null hypotheses for a lot I actually of write him. about him in the book too. There's a joke that mm-hmm. Freud or fraud. Now he did set in motion a very important field that eventually became scientific. Mm-hmm. But I would argue most of Freud's early work would teeter on the 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 the, the edge of pseudoscience. But at least it you can say it. quackery in this on this podcast. There we go. We can say well he's can't sue us. He's dead. So we're all good. <laughs> yeah. But um, we we can then point out as well that actually. You know, modern chemistry came from alchemy. People can start off with the wrong ideas, but if it if if it develops a method that's testable, that we can and a series of facts we can all check independently, then you start getting the basis of a, a scientific way of, of analyzing the world. So even people who start off with weird ideas sometimes can lead us in good directions too. I, I completely agree. I think that there is definitely a way for um, I suppose conceptual conceptualism and science to coexist or uh because i think uh the comedian eddie griffin has a good line where he was like somebody had to have been crazy like to come up with a phone and be like i want to talk to somebody that's not in the room like yeah. your reality would suggest that that that's something you wouldn't be able to achieve but it would need for somebody to uh you know i guess conceptualize something metaphysical and then be able to apply scientific research in order to make that happen and i think that is a problem within our society i definitely feel like um, there are elements of, I suppose, not so much scientific, but maybe t- technological advance that could serve to have more uh, divine belief in that, you know, there's a lot of things we can do, but we should always sometimes ask a question if it's morally right for us to do so and what implications that will have for the world at large and for our reality. And I also feel like, uh, you know, more uh, theological institutions like religion could serve to be more scientific in that you can present truths or as hypotheses so for example you might argue in the time where there's a high level of mortality i can understand why people uh, emphasize the sanctity of marriage and you know why that would frequently or i suppose more would be more predominantly a uh, paradigm of two heterosexual cisgender people uh, procreating because we are trying to ensure the continuation of our species but in a time where now technology technology has enabled for us, and just by the merit of, you know, kids are wanting to be adopted, has meant that we can observe new paradigms of family, it means that we should be able to return to this previous hypothesis uh, and be like, remember when they said this in Leviticus? The world's kind of changed, so you can kind of, you know, not have to adhere to that so, you know, rigidly. I, I always find, actually, you've hit an interesting one and totally tangent here. Leviticus always interests me, and we'll bring Howard into this as well, because I always feel like the New Testament is a real retcon of yes. the Old Testament. It's like totally different gods, totally different authors. And this is the 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 joyous craziness of Christianity. But I'm like, I find it very weird when you have biblical preachers who are really obsessed with the Old Testament. You're like, you know, then Jesus came along and basically contradicted all the stuff that, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself and turn the other cheek. And they mm. conveniently call, they forget that bit. So I always find people can find justifications for whatever crazy opinions and prejudices they hold in whatever text they want. But again, doesn't make them right. Just means that they're cherry picking the data. I cannot say enough how I've enjoyed today's episode, Dane. It, it has been an absolute beaut, isn't it, mate? Um, uh, I won't lie. and I, I, I crave more. Dr. David Grimes. I was going to say, we should do part two if you come back with us, David. I'd be happy to, and I'll try to focus next time. Because oh, no, don't worry about that. No, you stay focused, I've, because I've got a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists and pop culture conspiracies that I have. 
Um, I think we might need to tackle AI. I'd be interested to talk to you about AI because I think you probably have a few things to say. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Let's save that for part two. You know what? Absolutely. I'm happy to come back if you don't get too many complaints the first time. Oh, hopefully we do. Well, if people do complain, that is their truth. But the fact is that uh, we enjoy having you on the show, uh, Dr. David Grahams. Um, Please tell our listeners and viewers where they can find out about your good works, past, present and future. Yes. So um, my website is davidrobertgrimes.com. Very creative, I know. Uh, Instagram is david underscore robert underscore grimes. Uh, Twitter is at drg1985, near birth, feeling my age now. And if you want to read about the kind of stuff I write about and do, uh, as the book you mentioned, The Irrational Ape, that's what it's called in most of the world. And for some reason, if you're in North America, the book is called Good Thinking. And then if that seems a bit strange, you remember that 43% of Americans don't believe in evolution. So it's a hard sell. So I can see why the publisher... But seven, I think 70% believe in angels that exist and have wings and stuff. But Actually, if, if we go back into the, the Hebrew scripture, angels were terrifying. So always think, look, type, type in like, um, you know, biblical angels and you'll see horrifying things. I wouldn't want to believe in them. They would terrify me. No. <laughs> well, that bombshell. Uh... Sorry, that was a total tangent, but so you've got to throw a tangent out there at the end. Tangents are always good. Love the tangent. Listen, David, we'll see you for part two. Hope you've enjoyed that, listeners. Don't forget to give us some shouts on social media, tell you what you've uh, what you thought about today's show. But it's been a great one, Aido. It's been an amazing one uh, as a fellow irrational ape. Appreciate you having you on here. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste and myself, Howard Cohen. For more from Dane and myself, make sure you follow us on Instagram at DaneSnapTiste and at the Howard Cohen. You can now support us on Patreon. Just search DBQE Podcast and unlock ad-free content and you can watch the full-length video of the podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for Dane, make sure you send us a DM on Instagram at dbqe podcast and we could feature you in our next episode thanks for listening guys and remember question everything When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.